You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Amen. Good morning. You guys ready to dig into the Bible? All right. You will need one of these. It's called a Bible. And uh, if you don't have one, we also have it on the screen for you. Um, And we're going to be in the book of Acts. We also have Bibles as well. If you need a Bible this morning, if you want an actual Bible in your hand, you can raise your hand. We can bring one to you. Um, So, all right, everybody's good to go? All right. Book of Acts, chapter 15. We're just going to get down to the nitty-gritty. Does that sound good to you guys? Yeah? No? You don't really have a choice. You have to do whatever I do, so I just thought I'd ask to be polite. Okay, Acts 15, and I want you to back up just for a moment, um, just a few verses before chapter 15 starts, in Acts 14, verse 27. Here's what it says. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The word Gentiles in the Greek is ethne or ethnos. It means ethnic people groups, people groups of the world. Paul has gone with Barnabas on his first missionary journey, the first of three missionary journeys. This is exciting. They're going out into the world, places where the gospel has not gone yet, and they're sharing the gospel, and people are believing the gospel coming to Christ, and they're establishing these churches. So Paul and Barnabas have just returned at the end of 14 from this journey to the Gentiles, We're in a a little season right now for a few weeks of talking about something called unreached people groups. And I want you guys to say that with me again, like last week. Ready? Unreached people groups. Okay, I'm not saying that to make you feel like little kids. We're already making you read a children's Bible, so. Uh, But it kind of helps us just kind of ingrain it in our heads. Um, in, In global mission circles, they call it UPGs. So if you want to sound really cool, UPGs. Also easier to say. Um, the reason we're talking about this is this is something that is a predominant theme in the Bible, predominant theme in the book of Acts. Some would argue it is the theme of Acts, is the gospel going out to unreached peoples, the unreached people groups of the world. When you look at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts ends by saying the gospel continue to go out to the Gentiles. That's literally what it says at the end. At the end of two of the Gospels, Luke and Matthew, Jesus says, I'm sending you out to the nations. The word nations is the same word in the Greek, the ethnos, to the unreached people groups of the world. God says to Abraham in the Old Testament, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the what? Shout it out. Nations. The same word, it's just in Hebrew, which actually makes it a different word than the Greek. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew, if you're with me. Okay, you guys awake? Might be some coffee in the back if you need it. Okay. So this is a, a major theme of the Bible. One person, uh, one writer has said that if you remove mission, global missions to unreached people groups of the world from the Bible, then all you're left with is, is the front cover and the back cover. That's how predominant this theme is. It's not talked about in churches in America very often, in my experience. And so we want to we take the opportunities. We're going through the book of Acts, and as we're seeing Paul 
go on these journeys. And by the way, this chapter is the last we'll see of the Apostle Peter. Predominantly, it's going to be all about Paul going to unreached peoples for the entire rest of the book of Acts. So I would like to watch a quick video um, on this before we jump into this. And this is John Piper, and he's the author of one of the articles that Roy shared today. Anybody know who John Piper is? Raise your hand if you know who he is. About half of you. Okay. He's a really important guy, okay, basically. So listen to him. Let's watch. Okay. I actually paid him to say Spain in there, so. I'm kidding. So, so we're on this journey together as a church. This is highly important that there are, there are these two aspects of mission that we need to hold equally in both of our hands, is that the people of St. John's, your neighbors, the people that you work with, people who don't know Jesus in Portland, in Ventura, in the United States, need to hear the gospel. We need to reach them. They need to be, become disciples of Jesus, and we give our efforts to that. But we, we can't leave out the world. God looks at the globe that he has made, and he sees these, not just individuals, but people groups as well. So this is an exciting aspect of Acts, and so we want to hold these both equally, and because we tend to not talk about the latter as much, we want to focus in a little bit on that um, um, these, these coming weeks in Acts. Um, so, chapter 15. So now, we're on this exciting mission to, to the Gentiles, and we have the gospel, and we are doing this at Red Sea. And what tends to happen in the midst of this is something called conflict. That's really kind of what ha- is happening in chapter 15. Conflict happens because the people that God has chosen to use to take the gospel, which is the church, has a little something inside of it called sinners. Are there any sinners in here this morning? There might be some. I'm one too. Hey, all right. I'm in good company. Okay. We are sinners. And so as we're doing this holy, sanctified thing of God and we're bringing this good news to the people, our sin tends to, to, to cause conflict and tension, and it has to be dealt with. Okay? So here we go. Chapter 15. Let's start this off in verse 1. So Paul and Barnabas come back from the first missionary journey, the first of three. They're excited. They're telling everybody. People from the Gentiles are turning to faith in God. Everybody's excited. Yay, here's what happens. But, so now you have a but. It always happens. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, this is typically... All of us have probably seen this happen that have been a part of the church for, for any amount of time. God starts doing something really amazing, right? Lives are being changed. People are coming to Christ. And, and you're like, ah, oh, that's so awesome. Praise God. And then someone stands up and says, well, they have to be circumcised. Right? You're just kind of like, okay. Yeah, okay, well, yeah, we need to deal with that question. But, you know, but, but this, this, and this. And grumble, 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 mumble, you know? Like, okay, great. So here's kind of what's happening here. Everyone's excited, but someone stands up. Here's what they did. Look at this map just really quickly, um, just to kind of keep us oriented on where they are. I put a little map in here at the beginning. Um, We looked at Paul and Barnabas last week. They went basically west from the top there. You see Antioch. You can barely see that. Um, They went west to that big island there, and then up north, and then south a little bit, and then back around. Then they've come back to Antioch. Antioch um, is at the top of the coast there. Jerusalem is kind of down more toward the bottom, about halfway down. So it says that some people came down to Antioch from Jerusalem. Okay, what does that mean? Well, 
Obviously, Antioch is up from Jerusalem. You guys with me? So the Bible is not full of contradictions, as some might think. When they spoke of it in these days, Jerusalem was up high. They spoke of the level of the terrain above sea level. So you would actually come down to go to Antioch. So they came down to Antioch, these men, supposedly from the Jerusalem church. And here's what they say. Let's look at what they say. What is their, what is their question here? What are they upset about as all these Gentiles are believing in Jesus? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is more, number one, than just they need to be circumcised. Why would they need to be circumcised? For those that aren't familiar with um, the Old Testament and, and Jewish customs, this isn't just some random thing, you know, like, okay, that's great, let's circumcise them, you know. There's a reason for it. And it says that they need this to be saved, you notice that? So they're making it a salvation issue. This is why it's highly important. They're not just saying, well, they should also be circumcised to, to be Jewish. They need to do this or they're not really saved. Even though they believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on them and filled them. They're still not saved until they're circumcised. What's this all about? Genesis chapter 17. Um, any biblical scholars in here can turn there with me if you don't have to. Let's read it to you really quickly. Genesis 17. Jot it down if you want to look at it later just to make sure. Basically, God gives a covenant to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. And this is going to be my covenant. Verse 9 of chapter 17. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. This is the covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought, bought with mo your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. This is how serious it is. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Whoever is not circumcised will be cut off from the people of God. If, if it helps you remember it, if you don't cut it off, you will be cut off. Okay? And that'd be a way to help you there. Okay? That's how serious this is. It is okay to laugh in church. Just so you know. Not that I'm funny, but if, if you're feeling it, just let it go. Amen. Okay. So, First thing I think we need to understand is this. It's hard for us because we're just like, oh my gosh, what a bunch of party killers. <laughs> What's the big deal? They're saved in Jesus. This is beautiful. Well, here's the big deal is that this is Jerusalem. These are the people of God. God gave these commands to them to be Jewish, to be circumcised, all of these things. The Messiah comes that God promised, and his name is Jesus. And what, what was Jesus? He was Jewish, fully Jewish, from the, descended from the line of David the rightful king of Israel, Jewish, very Jewish. The church that comes to Christ is in Jerusalem. They are Jewish. In fact, many of the Gentiles who were coming to Christ, especially in the Jerusalem area, were, were um, we would call proselytes. Like they, they believed in the God of Israel. They didn't become fully Jewish and do all these things and they were circumcised, but they would come to the synagogue and they would be a part of those types of things. This was a very Jewish thing happening. This was a Jewish church. 
And so you look at this, and all of a sudden, they're, they're thinking, put yourselves as a Jewish person living in this time, and you believe Jesus is the Messiah. Put your faith in him. You join this community called Christians, called followers of Christ, right? You're thinking, I'm Jewish. I believed in the Messiah, and so let's do church. Well, what's it going to look like? Well, it's going to continue to be Jewish. They continue to gather at the temple, just like they always did. They, they were circumcised. I'm sure they continue to circumcise their children. Here's what the tent, where the tension is, is that Paul and Barnabas got crazy, and they start going out to all these places. Some places we looked at last week where there's not even a Jewish synagogue. And these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, are believing the message of Jesus the Messiah. Right? And so now these people say, well, that's awesome, but now they need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. It doesn't sound... Does it not sound quite as out there when you think of it that way? It, it kind of makes sense. So that's, you know, that's a legitimate thing to think about, Ge- legitimate concern. One thing we need to keep on the forefront of our minds, though, is that they make it a salvation issue. This needs to happen in order to be saved. They're not saved yet until they do this. Let's continue, verse 2. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of those who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But, there you go, some believers who belong, these are believers, these are Christians, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now they're going even farther and they're saying it's necessary for them to be circumcised for salvation and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What they're basically saying here is this. They need to become fully Jewish. Great, you believe in the Messiah, but you need to become fully Jewish with all of us. You need to live the law of Moses and all its regulations, all its ceremonial laws, you need to be circumcised and do all of these things. This is what they're saying. This is the issue at hand. So, this is also, by the way, <laughs> the dominant theme in Paul's letters and in many of the New Testament letters. Think about that just for a second. Because it's easy for us to look at this. Uh, you know, even when I was looking at this passage, I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this? We all know about this. You know, we're not circumcision, all these kind of things. This is the... Think about it. It's the predominant issue that drove many of the letters. Like the book of Galatians, this problem right here is the reason Paul wrote the entire book, letter of Galatians, to the church. It's the predominant issue that he deals with through the whole letter. Anybody read Galatians? Anybody like it? Found encouragement from it? It's an amazing, amazing book. So this is a huge issue, okay? So how do they deal with this issue? (laughs) What do they do? Here's the answer. Verse 6. They have an elders meeting. Woo. I'm not kidding you. Okay. The apostles and the elders gather together to consider this matter. Okay, now, you've heard people say, like, we want to be an Acts church. Have you heard that before? It's kind of a, it was a buzz thing for a while. We want to be a church like the book of Acts, where they... They're like sharing the gospel boldly and the Holy Spirit is descending and tongues of fire on people and people are being healed and they're having elder meetings, you know? 
Like, like have, when's the last time you heard that? Okay. Want to be in a book, an Acts church? They have elder meetings when issues come up. That's what they do. Okay. Just want to make, make that evident here. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Okay. First of all, there's a conflict going on. There's an issue that has to be dealt with. So, what we, I want to look at today is this. Now, there's some huge themes in this book, and obviously the one we're, we just talked about is a huge issue and theme to unpack. We'll unpack it a little bit, but what I want to focus on, if I may, with this, book, with this chapter today is conflict and some different ways that they dealt with this, the way that they dealt with these issues and the way that they, the church dealt with a conflict, particularly at the end of this chapter. I think there's some really good things in here that we can learn from this church. First thing is, is that they considered it. They got all the elders together. They got all the leaders together. And after much debate, okay, so they actually, it wasn't like they just got together and everybody agreed. This is ridiculous. Just tell these guys to shut up. Let's keep going. No, they, they actually debated, went back and forth. This is what we're going to see. So they've already done a bunch of debating. They've been taking it seriously, looking at it from all the different angles. And it says, Peter stood up and said to them this, brothers, you know that in the early days, and this would have been scholars estimate around 48 AD, and the event that Peter describes probably happened about 10 years earlier, 38 AD-ish. So this is 10 years later. He's referring back to this event that happened, the conversion of Cornelius, for those that were here weeks back, and remember that, chapter 10. This is the story he's referring to. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So he's saying giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, You are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In chapter 10, just a few pages back here, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius. God tells him to go to this, this Gentile person, this Gentile's family. It's not even, a Jew is not even allowed to go into a Gentile's house and to eat with him. But God shows Peter that it's okay. I love the Gentiles too. I want you to go into this guy's house, have dinner. So he does. He shares this message of the gospel with him. And it says that Peter's sharing the gospel with him. In verse 43, he, he sums up his gospel presentation by saying, To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, like while he was still giving his gospel presentation, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing? these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. Then, in verse 11, Peter's telling the story to the Jewish people who are wondering what's going on here. And Peter recounts the story, and in verse 15 he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? I love that. And when everyone heard it, they glorified God. Who am I that I should stand in God's way is what Peter says. He says to them here in verse 10, why are you putting God to the test? You saw what God did. So here's the first principle among a few that I want to touch on today in dealing with issues in the church. First thing is, well, let me back up just a second and reiterate this before we look at what it is. Issues are going to come up in the church, okay? There is going to be conflict. We're excited. We've got the pathways. We're, we're thinking about the future. We're looking at how do we equip you guys and how do we encourage one another, all of us, to move forward in these things, to be ambassadors, to become more of a family, become servants. It's exciting, right? When we envision it in our minds, it just looks beautiful. I just picture us sharing the gospel with people and building relationships in the community and people believing and we're up here baptizing them and celebrating what God's doing and we're just like eating together in our home communities and loving each other. Somebody has a need and we're taking care and we're sacrificing and, and we're servants of God and I'm spending time in the Word by myself. You know, like when you envision it in your mind, it just looks beautiful. It's another story when your flesh goes out and tries to do it. Amen? Anybody? Okay. That's how it is for me. It's like, wow, this is hard or I don't really want to do this as much as I thought I did. That's our flesh. It's really hard. As we're doing these things together, we have to know this up front. In chapter 14, last week, Paul encouraged the churches by saying, you must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That was his final words he wanted to leave with them. We've got to understand if we're going to do this thing together, we're going to get excited about it. It's good for us to recognize ahead of time that there's going to be some tension. Number one, Satan doesn't want it to happen, and we're all sinners going to be some conflicts that are going to arise. There's going to be some issues that we're going to have to deal with, and that's what they're doing here. So how do we deal with those when they come? The better we can prepare ourselves, the better off we're going to be, because the end goal is that the mission goes forward, that people come to know Jesus, right? So here's the first principle. The first thing that they do, to sum it up, is they look at what God is clearly doing. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. We'll have three of them today. First one is they look at what God is already clearly doing or what he, what he has done and what he is doing. So for, in, for example, in this passage, God is clearly demonstrating that he is going to save the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And he does it without them being circumcised. Notice that? Cornelius and his entire family... They believe, they're like, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. I believe the gospel. I heard the gospel articulated to me, and I believe it. I want Jesus. I want that. Holy Spirit fills them in front of everyone. They're speaking in tongues. It's undeniable. All of the Jewish people say, okay, God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles as well. God is doing this, and he's done it before they were circumcised, before they obeyed any of the Jewish laws. He has done this. This is what he has been doing. Paul and Barnabas have gone on this first missionary journey, and they're reporting to the church all of the Gentiles who have come to faith and believed. Now there's all these uncircumcised churches out there <laughs> functioning as churches. They even appointed elders in those churches, laid hands on them before they left. So the first principle is when we're dealing with an issue in the churches, we need to look at, okay, what is God actually doing here? Is there something we can clearly say, this is what God is doing? There are all kinds of churches in Portland right now. Some of them... A lot of them, I wouldn't do church that way. 
Some of them I even like strongly disagree with some of the, the, the strategies that they have, maybe the ways that they handle the Word of God and teach it. You know, some of their theology I disagree with. Maybe there's some house churches out there, really radical, you know, house churches like really radical, right? We're not going to pay a pastor. We're not going to, we're just going to meet in our house and, and just be organic and be, a, be an axe church. So hopefully they have elders, but we're going to be an axe church, okay? Do all these things. It's easy for a lot of people to say, you can't do that. You got to have some more organization than that. You're going to get crazy over here. All of these things, all of these are important issues and things to consider. But as we're thinking through that, how do we do church? How does Red Sea do church? Do I agree with everything that we do? You might be thinking that. There's probably going to be some things that you don't necessarily agree with. They're not your preference. At the end of the day, you need to find a church that you can commit to and become family with and be on mission with. But as you're looking at all these things, one of the things you need to look at when you're looking for a church and when you're examining Red Sea or when you're looking at churches around here and what they're doing is, what is God doing? And here is the thing to look for. Is the gospel being going out? Are they sharing the gospel? So, sorry to say it, but Mormon church, eh, failed. They're not, they're not sharing the gospel. It's a huge one. Are they talking about Jesus and who Jesus really is? What he has accomplished on the cross? Why he has accomplished that? What that means? It's God raised him from the dead. Is he offering salvation by grace through faith alone, which we're looking at here? And are people responding to that? Are people being saved? Are people saying, yes, I believe in that. I want to give my life to Jesus. And then they're coming and they're on this journey together. To me, if that is happening, I've got to look at that. And I've got to say, regardless of this issue and this issue and this issue, praise God that that is happening. You guys with me? It's a huge thing to look at. If we're dealing with an issue within our church in Red Sea and something's happening and we're trying to figure out what's going on, what is God actually doing here? Is there something we can clearly say that this person is show, demonstrating humility? They're believing the gospel. They're, they're, they're examining the word. They're taking it to heart. And we're trying to move forward, forward in this. Has God done something in their life that's demonstrated? That's the first thing. And the most clear demonstration of that is the gospel being articulated, people believing and embracing that. So that's what they do. So they look at what God is doing. That's exactly what Peter shares. Then it says in verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what, with what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I guess my encouragement with this is, is this. A lot of times in the church, and I experienced this myself, and I know that all of you do too, as we stop and we go, is this the right church for me? What are we doing? I don't know if I agree with the mission. I don't really know if I agree with this. I don't agree with that theology. Where's our money going? All these things. They're important things and issues. But at the end of the day, we need to look at, is this a gospel-believing church? <laughs> is the gospel good? Maybe I don't like the style of the way they teach the word here, but I like it a little bit here. Then go to that church, you know? Weigh those things out, but make sure that the gospel is going out that people are believing, and that lives are being transformed and changed. That's the principle. So Peter shares this. Paul and Barnabas reiterate what God is doing, and everyone falls silent. Then it says this in verse 13. So Paul, is, uh, Paul and Barnabas have spoken up. Peter's spoken up. Now we got one more guy that's going to speak up. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, 
brothers, listen to me. Okay. Moving into the second principle here is this. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, completely different dudes. (laughs) Completely different. Here's how. Peter, God called to the Jewish people. Even though he had the experience with Cornelius, which began to open the door to the Gentiles, Paul, God particularly commissioned him, you are going to go to the Gentiles. That is your unique mission. Peter, you are going to go to the Jewish people. When Peter shares the gospel, he shares with the Jewish people. He quotes the Old Testament. Paul goes to crazy places where they start worshiping and sacrificing to him because they don't know what's going on. He's out there in the Gentile far-off places. Paul is this aggressive, like, you know, church planner guy. He gets stoned. He gets back up. Well, I guess he didn't die, so he goes back into the city. Like, he's that type of guy. Barnabas is like, his name means son of encouragement. He's like the encourager. We're going to see in a little bit the difference between Paul and Barnabas at the end of this chapter. James is the Jewish guy. He's the brother of Jesus. He stayed and led He was the leader of the Jewish Jerusalem church. History tells us is that he he did everything Jewish. He worked in the temple. He was a priest, did all of these things. He was extremely Jewish. He's always the one, we'll see later in Acts, much later, he's the one defending the Jewish practices and trying to keep the peace as this Gentile and Jewish conflict goes on. So you got four different guys here looking at this one issue. So Peter says, hey, you know what? Look at what God has done in the past in this one event. Paul and Barnabas say, we were just out there and we've seen God do these amazing things. Now James is sitting back here in Jerusalem. He wasn't out there. He's probably feeling the pressure like, yeah, you know what? That's a really good, interesting thing to look at. Should they be circumcised? How much of the Jewish law should they keep? Because Jesus is Jewish. and You know what I mean? I didn't hear necessarily Jesus explicitly say like, don't do anything Jewish anymore after I leave. How do we work this out? Here's what James says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, calls Peter by his Hebrew name, which is interesting, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Here's what the Jewish guy does. He quotes one of the Jewish prophets, so the matter. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written in the book of Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So second principle I think we can glean from this is that when we're making decisions, and especially within the leadership, we need different kinds of guys. Do you guys agree? We don't need... Five Pauls, a little biased, going, oh, yeah, we need to take it to the Gentiles, of course. You know, like, like I'm, I'm all excited about the unreached people thing, right? Because I'm going to an unreached people. Of course, Billy's excited about it, and we're all at his mercy right now, so he can just talk about whatever he wants, right? Like, we need different, different types of men. Um, Royce, Josh, and myself, you just have to trust me on this. Maybe you've already gathered... We're a little different. Would anyone agree? Amen. Amen. We're, we're different in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I think it's extremely healthy. We sit, I mean, this thing right here, man. 
We spent like half a day going back and forth, back and forth, crossing out, editing. I, I gave my two cents. Josh gave his. It was like this perfect balance, and then we came to this. Yeah, and, and you can be thankful because this was a lot more pages before. We've condensed it down. But it was just, I just remember thinking, like, what a, what a beautiful process to be able to just, and actually come to agreement where I'll say yes. We all say, yes, I, I like that. That's good. We didn't, we didn't just have a bunch of guys that are all the same and go, yeah, we, we, we love this. Don't change anything in it. It's extremely healthy to have this. And you have all these pr- different perspectives, and they're all able to look and debate this for, I'm sure, hours and days, maybe weeks they were debating this and looking at every different angle. And you got James bringing probably the Jewish stuff. Paul, as we'll see in his letters later, is more bent on the, just free, free it up, man. Let the Gentiles, don't make them do any of these things. They're all working together. It's extremely healthy. We need to make sure that we always have that. And even in the body of Christ, the diversity, we need to embrace that. It's a good thing. It's good that we have different people with different perspectives. Give us your feedback. Don't ever feel like you can't do that. We're in this thing together, and that's the way God designed it. Verse 20, uh, verse 19. So James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, this, four, four things, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. <laughs> okay. We, 2,000 years later, are like, squeeze me? What are you talking about? Because they definitely shouldn't stay away from things that are strangled. I mean, that's like a no-brainer right there, right? Some of you are just like, what is going on here? Yeah. Blood. Okay, got that. Yes. I have no problem staying away from blood. I'm not partial to that. Um, so here's the deal with that. Okay, first of all, many of these things have to do with idol worship. So look at them. Abstain from things polluted by idols. The Jewish people did not want to eat meat that had been used in some kind of sacrificial worship, polluted by idols. From what has been strangled and from blood kind of go together because... <laughs> Why would someone strangle animals? I mean, what is that all about? Like, you're in a restaurant, and you're like, um, I have a question for the, for the waiter. Has this been strangled? <laughs> okay. Because I'm not allowed to eat it if it's not, okay? They weren't allowed to eat meat from strangled animals because for the, for the pagan rituals, they wanted the blood. They wanted to drink the blood, to eat the blood, to use the blood. And so when you strangle an animal, the blood is contained, correct? Makes sense. Stay away from that. Stay away from blood, which obviously has to do with the pagan rituals. And in the Old Testament, God was very particular. The life is in the blood. Do not drink the blood. The blood is sacred to God. It's the life of the animal, of, of, of the human being, of his creation. And then he says in verse 21, for, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying here is this is that in all of these cities, most of these cities, thus far at least, where the gospel has gone out and Gentiles have believed and there's a church, there's a synagogue there. There's a Jewish synagogue there where Moses, the book of the law, is being proclaimed. So there's Jewish people. And so what he's hinting at here is this. Where these Gentiles are coming to faith, there's also Jewish believers, and they're going to have to be together in the church. That's what he's saying. 
There, it's, we don't have the luxury right now of just having this Gentile church with no Jewish influence. They've got to be able to work together. And so what James is doing is he's bringing the Jewish side of it, and he's going, if the Gentiles just act like the Jewish stuff's ridiculous, we don't, we don't need to do that anymore because Jesus died for my sins, and I just have, have faith, and that's it. That's going to cause a lot of tension with the Jewish people. But they also don't want to put a burden on the Gentiles of having to do all, this, all of this stuff and have to worry about all this now because it's not about that. Peter says, like, why put on them a yoke that our fathers couldn't bear and we can't bear? He's not saying the yoke is bad, the yoke of God's laws. He's just saying that we couldn't bear it because we're sinners. We needed Jesus, and God sent him to save us from our sins, to believe in him by faith, and now we're saved. So they're blending the two of these things together, and the reason that they're doing it is for the unity of the church. Here's principle three. Everything that we do needs to be for the unity of the body. And so sometimes we might have to say, I don't personally like this, but let's allow that to happen. Let's come up with some type of balance here because every church looks different. Churches in other parts of the world look completely different than ours. They're doing things completely different because that's their culture. And so if we're going to live together, we're gonna, and we want the gospel, remember what's the purpose is that the gospel goes out, that people hear it, and that they come to faith and they're engrafted into a family of servants and ambassadors. That's what we want. So we have to find a way to make this work together. So it's not always just like, here's all the things, either like it or you don't, and you're out. There's going to be tension. There's going to be tension in the home communities that you're in. How do we work these out? It's give and take. That's what the decision here was. They could have rightly said, and we know this now looking at Paul's letters, if they just said, you know what, the Gentiles don't have to do anything Jewish. You guys just keep living for Jesus. That would have been completely biblical. Because Jesus is enough for salvation. His sacrifice on the cross... He gave the Son of God, perfect Son of God, gave his life on a cross and bled and died in your place for your sin. God raised him from the dead. And he, he didn't say, and now if you trust in Jesus and you're circumcised, you can be saved. It's like, that's it, man. The perfect Son of the living God, the eternal Son of God, died where you were supposed to be. I, I, the Father allowed him to be brutally killed and then raised him from the dead for your salvation. That's enough. There's not, you can't add anything to that. So they would have been completely biblical saying that, but they didn't. They said, you know what? These churches, we want them to work together. We don't want to cause a Jewish church and a Gentile church now. First Baptist church and, you know, whatever covenant church and charismatic church over here, you know, tends to happen. They're like, they need to work together right now for the sake of the gospel. You guys with me? So they came up with this plan. This is it. So, Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they had to send these guys on this long journey up to Antioch because they didn't have email back then. That might not have been the best way to do it anyway. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers with the following letter. Here's what the letter said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although they gave, we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord. I love, notice the language there. It's not like, we heard a voice from heaven, like, specifically say, <laughs> don't eat strangled animals and blood. They're like, you know what, after much debate and prayer and like laboring and asking God to reveal, it seemed good to us. Like we came to a decision together. Not every decision is going to be this 
you know, we can't show you this tablet. Royce went up on a mountain, you know, and came back with this tablet with like laws carved in him for you. It seemed good to us. We went through this process, this healthy process for this decision. Having come to one accord, we all agreed together to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. You catch that? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. I'll let you work that one out. And to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and obviously from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had, been, who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas re- remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is beautiful because they dealt with this issue, they came to this decision that brought unity to the church so that the gospel continued to go forward. And I'd love to end there and say that they lived happily ever after. But Paul and Barnabas just won't allow me to do that. Verse <laughs> 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. See how they are. He's saying, let's go backtrack on our first missionary journey and do some follow-up with these churches that we planted. Good, great idea. Shows their care again, shepherding heart that Paul had for these churches. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone, not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. The word in the Greek that's used for sharp disagreement means a sharp disagreement. So this is a great translation, BSV. It's also a word that's used um, to, to speak of the wrath of God, which shows the weight of the word. This is like, this wasn't just like, eh, what do you think? I don't know if we agree on that. It was like a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. It actually, it's such a sharp disagreement that it caused them to separate from each other. They couldn't continue side by side in mission. That's how serious this was. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, the island as you saw on the map there earlier. The first island they had gone to. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Seleucia, strengthening the churches. So they go their separate ways. Um, First thing we know about this, to kind of help bring this into perspective, is Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Here's how we know this. Uh, There's a verse in Colossians. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Okay, matter settled. So, Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Barnabas is 
His name means the son of encouragement. What we've seen of Barnabas thus far in the book of Acts is that he's the one that everybody was freaked out about Paul. They, didn't wanna, they wouldn't let him come into the church. Barnabas convinced them and brought Paul in. Barnabas has been there with Paul, encouraging him as an encourager, as a, like, by Paul's side. This is who Barnabas is. It's his personality. Mark, it says um, earlier in the book of Acts, that as they went on this journey and they went to that island of Cyprus, Mark decided to, to jet and go back to Jerusalem. We don't know anything else about why. Maybe he was just like, you know what, I changed my mind, whatever that was. You can understand why Paul is like, I don't want to bring a guy that, I mean, we didn't even make it past Cyprus and he bailed. Like, I'm not going to bring him again on this journey, right? Barnabas, so Paul's concerned about the mission. He doesn't want anything to slow it down. He knows how hard this is going to be. I mean, he got stoned last time. You can't have some guy that's like weak and wishy-washy with you you're getting stoned for the gospel. Barnabas is saying, no, he, he, he has potential, just like you did, Paul. We need to give him a second chance. Barnabas wants to bring him. But here's the deal, is that they don't resolve the conflict, or do they? They don't reconcile, or do they? What do you guys think? I'll leave that one for you guys. But to me, this is interesting because what actually happens is they part ways and they go on each on a particular mission. I think this is going to happen sometimes in the church. I love that Luke puts us in here and he's like completely real about it. This is obviously a significant event. Here's what I think we could take from this. There's going to be differences in the church and we need to work those out for the unity of the church and for the sake of the gospel going out. And I hope that most of the time, like the first section in Acts 15, that we're able to do that. But there's, some of you may have even experienced this. It's not always going to happen. You can't always make two people see eye to eye and come up with a solution where they do the same thing together. Sometimes this happens. But here's what I love about it, is that with the church's uh, commendation, they go out. They come up with a plan. Paul's passionate about this. He feels strongly this way. He goes with Silas, which is awesome, brings a new guy with him. And God, I'm sure, you, as we're going to see, uses him mightily in two more missionary journeys. We don't hear anything more about Barnabas and Mark in the book of Acts, but they go off also on this journey together, doing what they feel passionate about. Barnabas is an encourager. He's the discipler, and he's like, I'm not just going to leave. I'm not just going to throw Mark over to Satan. I see the potential in him, and I'm going to use him. So they come to that decision, and Paul says, great, take him. I'm going to go here. We do hear about Mark again. This is, this is encouraging. In the next verse, Paul mentions in his letter in Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So later, much later on, Mark actually becomes a fellow worker with Paul. Here's one more. 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? So because, this is what I see from this, and obviously this is very limited knowledge that we have. What I get from this is, because Barnabas, God used him in his unique personality and his gifting and his heart, he was able to bring Mark along and disciple him, and eventually Mark became extremely useful to Paul. 
Now, if Paul would have had his way and everybody decided, let's do what Paul's going to do, I don't know what would have happened to Mark. I think it's beautiful the way that worked out. Here's the bottom line as we, as we prepare um, for worship together. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, for the sins of mankind, for the sins of the Gentiles, so that we could be brought to faith and brought back into a relationship with God, and that is what God is doing. That's what life is all about. That's what life is all about, bringing the gospel, God's good news. That's what our lives are about, and doing that together, right, as servants, family, and ambassadors. It's not going to be easy. I'm just telling you that straight up. It is not going to be easy. You can quote me on that. Refer back to this message <laughs> three months from now. There's going to be times of joy. There's going to be times where we're just fluid and flowing together. And there's going to be times where there's tension and issues. We have to stop. We have to deal with those to a certain degree and to work those out. And it's not always going to be pretty. But we've got to keep that in mind is that the end goal is like, are we going to be united? Is the gospel still central? Do we care about those people out there who desperately need Jesus? right around us in this neighborhood and on the other side of the world? Is that, what's, is that what's driving us? That was the question. Here's Jesus' prayer for us. Call this the high priestly prayer in John 17. He's praying for his disciples and he stops and then he actually prays for you and me and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's me. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen? Do you guys just bow your heads with me and just close your eyes and ask you to do that just because it just helps us to focus. We're about to, to uh, celebrate communion together. Um, we have bread here, which represents the body of Jesus Christ that was given for you and for me on the cross. We remember that together. The juice represents the blood that was spilled. And I want you to just take some time with your eyes closed and just realizing that God is here, that he's real, and that he cares what we're doing right now. And to God, this is serious. This is, this is the culmination of history, Christ on the cross, culmination of your life and my life. This is what you and I need desperately every day is the forgiveness of Jesus. And just begin to think about those in your world, in your sphere of influence, that also need this. Just take a few minutes just in silence to prepare ourselves. And then as we begin to sing and to worship, come, come forward at any time. Take the bread, dip it in the juice. And we take that and we remember what Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at